Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with M.K. Palmore. We are all lifelong learners, and nowhere is this more relevant than in the practice of leadership. Our goal is continual learning and improvement. Let's get after it. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey folks, this is MK Palmore. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Student Podcast. In this podcast, we try and have deep conversations about the subject and discipline of leadership with leaders in business uh, industry and or private industry and across the spectrum. And I'm uh, honored to have as my guest in the virtual studio today, uh, Adiola Whitney, who is the current CEO uh, of a large-scale nonprofit in the education space called Reading Partners. And uh, she's been a, a longtime uh, education practitioner, spent some time in the uh, private sector in the education space. But uh, I thought it might be interesting to bring in the CEO of a nonprofit as my experience as of late has been that uh, uh, operating effectively in the nonprofit space can be a huge challenge. Uh, and I am sure that Adiola has a ton of leadership examples and probably stories to uh, to share with us, and I'm excited to bring her in the studio. So, Adiola, welcome to the Leadership Student Podcast. Thank you so much, MK. I am delighted to be here and just really excited about our conversation. So, uh, Adiola, I've had the benefit of, uh, of knowing you a little bit now, at least for several weeks, and we had the opportunity to meet in person. Tell the folks a little bit about um, maybe your career trajectory, and then we're, we're going to probably dive a little bit deeper into your role at, uh, at Reading Partners. Sure. So um, I've been in the nonprofit space since about 2009. Um, so what is that, 14 or so years I've spent in nonprofit leadership um, roles like being an executive director uh, of a region for a national nonprofit called Playworks. Um, I've launched nonprofits like Playworks um, in New Jersey and also expanded that operation to New York City. Um, I have played, I would say, most significantly um, of the time that I've been in nonprofit leadership or nonprofit in the nonprofit industry as a whole, I've spent a lot of time in the growth operations and management space. So I have helped to grow nonprofits at Reading Partners. So I was actually here at a different time uh, from 2013 to 2016 in a role where I oversaw all of our regions and our growth and operations where I managed the executive directors who were leading each of our markets. And I did that also for another organization called iMentor, uh, which is an organization that focuses on college access for high school students um, uh, that come from um, economically disadvantaged communities. So I similarly, I opened up new markets for them and oversaw their overall operations. And prior to my time as an executive director for Playworks, or, um, and uh, my time now as CEO and other roles in for-profit, I worked in nonprofit, in, I, I mean, in uh, nonprofit, I've worked in for-profit uh, management. So I worked for a subsidiary of Kaplan. It no longer exists. Uh, back then it was called SCORE, it was an educational, it was tutoring centers. Uh, this was in the late nineties. Uh, and I worked for them for about nine years overseeing regions, uh, doing training and over oversight general management 
um, of the reading centers um, on the East Coast, or of the tutoring centers rather on the East Coast. Um, and I've also I, I played a stint um, at uh, McGraw Hill, uh, working for one of their um, one of their divisions that specifically worked with state departments of ed to help um, support um, on testing and assessments and uh, creating models for testing and assessments and uh, supplemental supplemental materials for everyone from a superintendent to a family member of a student who's taking a high stakes test. So I've had a lot of varying experience in the tutoring space, in nonprofit education, um, in nonprofit management and leadership, and in um, business development and marketing and in general operations for for-profit education. So um, tell us a little bit about your current role as the CEO of Reading Partners. Maybe talk a little bit about the organization, its size and uh, scope of what you guys do. Sure. I'm not being biased, MK, but this is by far one of my most favorite roles I've ever had. Um, it's I'm, I'm now in my third year. It'll be three years in October. Um, and I've been at, as I said earlier, I've been part of Reading Partners, but in a different role from about 2013 to 2016. So I came in as CEO to Reading Partners in the middle of the pandemic in the fall of 2020. And uh, Reading Partners is a national nonprofit organization. And we mobilize community volunteers to help support and mitigate the literacy crisis that exists in this country for early elementary age kids. So we work with kindergarten through fourth grade uh, students who are struggling perhaps with some areas of reading or you know, half a grade to two and a half grade levels uh, behind their grade level in reading. And we provide a tutor to them two times a week, every single week in school to support them uh, in what we call the science of reading, which is the most research-based um, fundamental and proven ways to teach kids how to read uh, in this country. Um, so unfortunately in this country, and the reason we exist um, is because 80% of elementary age children um, will not be reading at grade level or, not, or rather are not reading at grade level. Um, and of that, the majority of those students um, are experiencing some type of economic disadvantages or their families are. And that that equals about 9 million children. So, you know, when I think about the challenges around literacy, um, we do not at all purport to be the panacea, but we are one of many great solutions in this country to truly help children. And especially now, especially all that we've seen over the last three years with disruptive learning and children having to learn online and just so many different challenges that children, educators and their families are experiencing. We believe that our model is one solution to help kids get to grade level. Uh, and we also just know that unfortunately, um, a child's elementary literacy level is one of the highest predictors of whether or not they will attain a high school um, a high school diploma. And so, and if they're not, and then, and then they're predictors when young people in this country do not get their high school diploma, that impacts what careers they're gonna have, how much money they'll make, how successful they'll be. Um, so this is just, it, it, to me, this is, this, is a, this, is a, this is our country's problem, right? It's not just a challenge for people who have children. 
Um, but I think this is something this is something that we all have to tackle as citizens of this country. Uh, it's it's a massive problem, and um, um, uh, kudos to you guys for putting uh, you know so much resources and effort into supporting the idea of getting right into the schools and 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 sort of uh, tackling this issue head on. I, I so for the audience, I had the the benefit of actually attending um, a Bay Area event for Reading Partners, and I was super impressed with one just the commitment of. Uh, the folks who were, you know, part of your full-time employee workforce that uh, that supports the activities, but I was also probably much more impressed with the volunteer network and other folks who uh, uh, gravitate towards one. This as an issue of passion, and I know that's what it takes yes. for folks to get engaged in uh, nonprofit space. But just the level of support and engagement, I, I just I became a fan uh, uh, relatively immediately. How many um, chapters or regions do you guys have throughout the country? Because I, again, I was impressed, impressed with your footprint out here in the Bay Area. I assume that's Thank replicated you. in other and other places out uh, around the country. What's that look like? That's right. Yes, it is replicated. So we are in 12 metropolitan areas across the country. And you were in, um, I think we were in San Jose that day, um, yeah. but in the, in the Silicon Valley region of the Bay Area. So that's one of our offices. We also have one in San Francisco um, that supports our students in San Francisco and other parts of the East Bay, like Richmond and Oakland. Um, and then we're also in LA. So in terms of our breadth in California, and then we're in places like the South, like in, uh, well, some people wouldn't consider Tulsa the South, others would, but Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, the Fort Worth, Dallas area, uh, South Carolina, uh, Denver, Seattle, Twin Cities. Um, on the East Coast, we're in New York City, Baltimore, D.C. Um, I am sure I have probably forgotten one or two. Yeah. Uh, I should have my map in front of me, but we're in 12 metropolitan areas across no. the country. And then our staff, we have um, over 500 people who work or serve with reading partners. And I say work or serve because it's just a little over 200 staff members and then about 300 AmeriCorps members. And uh, these are people who do a year of service. And for people who are like, what is AmeriCorps? Many people have heard of the Peace Corps and that's mm -hmm. their, those are folks doing a year of service where they're getting a stipend from the, um, the government to go to a different country and to support uh, work in, in, in a variety of different industries, including education and public service. Um, it's similar to that, but it's in this country. And so many of our uh, AmeriCorps um, core members or volunteers, uh, they get siphons and they are with us for an entire school year. So they're truly the face of reading partners in our schools and with our school partners, because our, our schools are our biggest stakeholders for, for whom we partner with uh, to roll our programs out. So I, I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to give folks an impression as to the, the size of the organization and scope, because it, it yeah. I think will help as we start this conversation around leadership, give people an idea of how difficult it might be to manage all of those various resources, a combined paid, unpaid, volunteer kind of network of folks around the country, all geared towards one mission set and doing, uh, doing this great work uh, dedicated to to. Uh, helping youth get on the right track and and really get um, focused in on what what a huge benefit it is just to one be able to read and then subsequently if you get good at it leads to better communication skills leads to the ability for you know young people students to better amplify their own capabilities and I can tell you um, you know from my own personal experience being able to communicate effectively uh, can lead to all kinds of opportunities for which people don't just don't even. Uh, know about or aren't aware of. And so it's it's a core right. skill. 
Yeah, it's absolutely That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And we're about a $30 million organization in terms of scope. And we're one singular 501c3. Sometimes mm -hmm. national nonprofits, you know, each office is a different nonprofit. We're all one nonprofit. So we have one HR team, one IT team yeah. that all is housed at our national office uh, in the Bay Area. And in addition uh, to that, each region, um, and then we have every region that's that is uh, led by an executive director, a regional executive director um, that is really in charge of ensuring that the vision of reading partners and our mission is carried out in their specific uh, geographical area. Yeah. Awesome. So let, let's start our discussion then around your leadership journey. And I'll, the first point I want to tease out is that um, you work for an organization for a number of years, this reading partners, you depart mm -hmm. maybe to go into a different opportunity but something um, aligns and then you are either asked to come back or the, the opportunities made available to you. Talk to me about the mental process about going back now at a higher leadership level into an organization you already work for and maybe like what kind of trepidation you might've had about the opportunity and how you thought about it. Yeah, well, maybe where I'll first just start is, you know, what initially brought me to Reading Partners back in 2013. I was an executive director running um, and two offices uh, for a, a, a national nonprofit uh, called Playworks. And we work, and they still do this work, it's an extraordinary organization, but they focus on social and emotional learning for children through play uh, and conflict resolution. And they do things at recess and also provide after school programs. They're also, their national headquarters is also in the Bay Area. So I was hired there in 2009 to open up the Newark office and then subsequently open up the New York City office. And I had grown that operation from serving 1,200 kids to nearly 10,000 kids. Um, it was like $250,000 general operating budget and grew that to nearly $3 million over um, the nearly four years that I was there. I loved the work. I loved being part of a national movement. I loved the opportunity to work with AmeriCorps members and similar to Reading Partners, the frontline folks who are doing the work were also AmeriCorps members. So I think this notion of service and this notion of engaging young people and at that time in elementary school was amazing and was exactly what I wanted to do. And to my kids at that time, they thought it was really cool that I could like teach them games. So I did that and uh, while I was there and really thinking about the next strategic plan for the New York, New Jersey operation for Playworks, I got recruited from Reading Partners. And I, I hadn't heard of Reading Partners prior to that time. And when I when I read more about who they were and what they were doing and how they were started, um, as just an altruistic being, as someone who considers herself a social entrepreneur, but then also as a mother of, of young boys. And at the time, I had two kids, uh, two sons, and my youngest son was really struggling in reading. And so to understand the importance of an organization like Reading Partners, but specifically for families who perhaps may have less resources than I do, um, and particularly because the, the focus of our organization is to work in communities where there are a high concentration of families who experience economic disadvantages, um, I felt really lucky. Um, you know, I think it just puts things into perspective when, yes, my son is struggling in reading, but I can afford a tutor. I can take time off of work and go to go into the classroom and observe and talk to the principal. And I know how to advocate for my son. And just there were many different resources that I recognized I had. 
And I thought, wow, so if reading partners can, can be a resource for families, this is what I want to do. So I came in 2013 and, you know, was leading their overall operation and, and directly supporting executive directors and hiring them and really helping to ensure that they were able to uh, articulate our, our mission and our vision in their respective regions. And I was there until about 2016. And at that time, we had grown to about 14 regions. I was loving the work that we were doing. Um, and I think we were challenged at that time uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we were at an, an, an inflection point in our growth and in our strategy. And we were really thinking a lot about how we would scale. And um, at the time, over 90% of the young people we served were young children of color. And I worried that we weren't talking enough about educational equity. And when you look at this country, when you think about the history of public education, we think about the challenges um, around literacy and the numbers, the, the disproportionate numbers of young children who specifically are kids of color and who also happen to uh, come from families that have, that are currently or have experienced economic disadvantages. The numbers are, you can, it's not even like comparing apples to apples, but um, there is a large percentage of young uh, children in that demographic that I described that are struggling with literacy. And there's a reason for that. And I felt like at Reading Partners at the time, we weren't really talking about why that was. We weren't really talking enough about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We wanted to, but it was hard to think about how do we do that and think about this inflection point? How do we do that and how do we scale? And um, so it was that coupled with the fact that I had just had my third child at that time and I was traveling the country with this little baby in tow and it was too much. It was too much for me to do that and balance everything I needed to do personally and the person I wanted to be professionally. So I decided I still want to do this work. I still want to be a nonprofit, but maybe I need to be somewhere where the national office is located closer to my home. And so I went to an organization called iMentor and their office, you know, 30 minutes from my home was much easier to get to. And while we were going national, we weren't nearly as big as Reading Partners was. And so I wasn't feeling, you know, challenged by really being able to provide teams with everything that they wanted. Um, I had known since I'd been an executive director for a regional nonprofit Playworks that I wanted to be a CEO. And that was no different in 2020 when I decided to start looking for a new role, when I decided to leave iMentor, not at all because I was unhappy, but because I was ready to be at the helm of an organization. And I think that 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 decision for me came in like January of 2020 that, you know what, I'm ready to go somewhere. I didn't know at that time it was going to be reading partners. And then a couple months later, we were hearing, you know, all this news about this um, global pandemic and about COVID-19. And then I thought, wait, what the heck am I doing trying to look for a new job during the middle of a global pandemic? Like I should actually be thinking about job security. And right around the pandemic also came the racial reckoning. And we heard stories like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and, um, and, and just countless other uh, Black people uh, being killed um, for reasons undescribable. And just, and, and just there was a reckoning in this country, right? And there was a movement of um, Black Lives Matter and other movements happening. Um, and you know, I'm a mother of three black young boys and they were asking me a number of questions. And it was around that time that I said, no, 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 no. I, this is absolutely the right time. And I know I'm taking a risk, but I think the best leaders are risk takers. And I think this, I know I have a great job and I'm making a great living and I love what I do, 
but I'm really interested in being a CEO and being at the helm of an organization that's supporting young black and brown kids. I think that's what, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think this time is now. So I began to look at organizations and um, I started having informal conversations with a number of different nonprofits across the country and in different types of work, all in the education space. And when I, when I learned that there was an opening at Reading Partners, I got really excited and mainly got excited to see all that they had done since I had left and also how they were embracing this notion of educational equity and the fact that we can't talk about literacy without talking about that. And our work is really at the crossroads. And that's what got me excited to say, no, this is my time to come back. I love that or I loved reading partners when I was here before. And it was refreshing to see that so many leaders were still at the organization doing this great work. And there's no time like a pandemic that literacy is at the forefront of folks' minds, parents, educators. And if I can now be part of this movement, like this is exactly what I should be doing. So that was some of the thinking and, and motivation and inspiration for me to come back. So I, I think that you touched on something really important in terms of literacy, certainly for the pandemic. Maybe you guys recognize going into the pandemic that it was going to be a challenge for students, especially students of color, those socioeconomically disadvantaged. But what I, what I want to pull the thread back on is the decision or time frame that you decide, you know what, I want to be, I want to lead my own effort here. I, I think I've had um, some quality or, or, or qualitative like experiences that have been substantive and have now prepared me for an opportunity to lead. Um, can yes. you talk a little bit about like sort of the mindset around like the, the, the push to create your own destiny and sort of lead from a perspective of, Hey, I want, I want to be in charge. I want to be the person who's sort of making the, the responsible calls around strategy and where this organization is going. Yeah, I, I can answer that in a few different ways. Um, something that I was recently talking to um, my colleagues in, at Reading Partners about is this Japanese um, saying or, or, or concept called Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I. It stands for the meaning of life. And like the, the whole notion behind Ikigai is that every person um, has a destiny. Every person um, is here and, and, and has a purpose. And it's really the crossroads uh, it's the crossroads of um, doing something you love. Um, and that also happens to be something you have skill in. Like, I love to sing, but I know I can't sing, right? So I don't think I'm supposed to be on Broadway. But doing something you love, doing something you're skilled at, that also being something that the world needs more of, something you can get paid to do. And so for me, it that, that it for me was is being at the helm of an organization doing something in the social entrepreneurial space because I've had a taste of it. I've been an executive director before and I, I did have some level of autonomy, but at the end of the day, I wasn't determining the culture and the values and all the things that we do in, did in the organization. The CEO, Joe Violet at the time um, at Playworks was doing that. And, you know, and I got to see what she got to do and how she worked with her executive leadership team to think about strategy and think about the direction that the organization was going and ensure that the board was playing a role in it. And then at I mentor, I got to see that firsthand. I worked really closely with our CEO at the time and got to be a thought partner to him. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the, the big decisions that were being made were his. 
And he was making those alongside the board. And so while I got to place, you know, I've been a C-suite leader in nonprofits before, and I got to make some decisions, but I was like, I think I can do this. I really think I can do this. And I think being a CEO allows me to do that. So it's both, I think it's, it's, it's my time, it's the season, it's the reason, it's Ikigai. And it's, if you really wanna be at the helm of something, lead something. Um, and that's what I'm doing. And, and, I, and, and when I talk about leading it, it, it's not done in a silo, right? Like this isn't something that I do on my own. I don't wake up every day and say, ooh, we're gonna do these five things and I'm just gonna make it happen. Like I have an incredible team. I have people who support me. I, there are people in this organization who, who have skills that I don't possess. And I surround myself with those type of leaders. I, I think of it as a team. I think of it as like, who are the people that I need to help fill out, you know, think of old school, is it Voltron? There's the Transformers, which, which was like the, it was like the robot that was made of many different robots. I, I think Voltron, but I, I can't, I'm, please audience don't hold me Voltron. to that. There's probably some fans out there who are like shaking their heads right now, but. It's, no, no, right. no, 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 it is Voltron. Transformers, okay. they transform like from a right. car into a robot, but you're right. It is, it is Voltron. It was like all of these great, small, mighty superheroes mm -hmm. made like this huge, and that's what I think of. Like I am a piece of the puzzle. The board is a piece of the puzzle. My C-suite is a piece of the puzzle. Our AmeriCorps members, other leaders, the executive directors, other staff, are all a piece of this huge puzzle that's called Reading Partners. And to be part of it is just, it's the best job I've ever had in my life. I, I love it. I wake up every day really excited about this work and it's not to suggest there aren't challenges or there aren't days where I'm like literally, you know, holding my head in my hands, which my team knows that means it's like, oh, this is a hard day, um, but it's all worth it. Because at the end of the day, the work that we're doing is so meaningful and is so needed. And, you know, when this chapter is over, the fact that I'll be able to look back and say, this is the work that I did in the middle of the pandemic means more to me than I can put into words. So part of the conversations I've had with others and, and I talk about as a, as a uh, leadership writer and, and student of the discipline is the mental pause that you have to take before uh, venturing into uh, large scale leadership opportunities. And I'm wondering if there are any tools that are in your toolkit, mental or otherwise, that you sort of take into new leadership opportunities? Like, how do you prepare mentally for it? You know, do you think about, hey, I need to pace myself, make sure I don't come off too strong in the first meeting? Do I need to, you know, be reflective about, uh, especially in, in, in my personal experience, be reflective about my most recent experience that I came from? Like, what lessons did I learn in that so that I don't carry forward uh, you know, I don't know, problematic behavior or things that I do that may uh, be a, a leadership turnoff for people. It's sort of learning and, and trying to build and not make the same mistakes forward. How, how do you approach that exercise? Oh, I love this question so much, MK. Um, I approach it as an actor, and I do not mean from a place of inauthenticity. But um, in college, I was an English and African-American studies major with... Um, a concentration in fine arts or in performing arts rather. And so I was in a lot of plays. I wrote a couple plays. Um, and one thing that I learned about being on stage is the importance of connection. 
Like it doesn't matter how loud you are, whether or not you can cry in that scene. If you're not connecting with your audience, you're doing something wrong. And I would argue that like the most most authentic you can be is actually when you're acting. Because I think, you know, the 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 role, the, the emotions you emote have to come from someplace. You can't just make it up. So I think similarly, when I am giving a speech to 500 people, um, you know, we have these things at Reading Partners called All RP Calls, All Reading Partners Calls, where every person in the organization gets on the Zoom call together and I do a five minute reflection. Like I think about what is an AmeriCorps member who's in Tulsa thinking right now? And wait, have I actually talked to an AmeriCorps member in Tulsa in the last couple of months? I need to actually talk to an AmeriCorps member. So I get a sense of the type of things that they're thinking about. And what am I going to do to connect to that person? What am I going to say? So that's, so I think I, I do kind of go back to some of um, my acting days and connection is about like how you're saying a thing, your inflection, knowing what other people are inspired by and not just relying on my own inspiration. I'm inspired by a set of things, but that's not everybody else's inspiration. Understanding the why of the people in my organization and connecting what I'm saying to that why. Um, one of my former colleagues uh, who's now, I think uh, she works at KIPP, I'm going to say her name because she taught me this, her name's Ashawa Helton. Um, we worked together at iMentor and anytime, she was also, um, she, she led program for iMentor, she was a chief program officer. And when we were thinking about messaging or, or going, you know, in front of the entire organization to do a thing or thinking about change management, she would always say, what is the with them? What is in it for me? And not me as a C-suite leader, but what's in it for our staff? How am I, as CEO, connecting this strategy, this, this three-year plan, to our staff, to, the, to an associate, to the person in the organization who may not have the same level of privilege and decision-making? How am I connecting it to them? How, am I, how is what I'm saying resonating with that person, not the person who I speak to every single day? Right? So that's some of what I think about when I'm talking. And then I think even bigger than that, I guess to your earlier question, MK, you know, how, how did I think about going into this role? You know, people talk about um, imposter syndrome. And um, I just listened to a really interesting Reshma. I'm forgetting her last name, but she started Girls Who Code. Um, she had just done, um, she was just speaking at a graduation and she talked about how how made up imposter syndrome is, but that's another conversation for another day. But I, I feel like imposter syndrome being made by people who are in power um, and, and that is it real? And, uh, you know, so we can argue about whether or not it's real, but the, the point of why I'm bringing up imposter syndrome is that I, you know, one could argue that everybody has some of it or has, has it to an extent. And right. I know, I think I'm, when I, when I feel like I'm walking into a room and I get nervous or I begin to sweat or when I'm thinking about a big role that I'm taking on for the first time, I've never been a CEO before, what brings me comfort and like what I have to, like where I have to ground myself mentally is I say to myself, so I go by all, I'm Ade Allah, but I also go by Allah. I say, Allah, you don't have to know it all. Like you, and in fact, it's actually really great when you let people know you don't know. And so I'm just really vulnerable and transparent. I don't make shit up. It's okay that I curse. I don't make things up. Right. Um, if I don't know, I say I don't know. And I say we're going to figure this out. Or I say, what do you think about this? I, I think of myself as a continuous learner. And I think that's one of the key ingredients that make really great leaders. I do not pretend to know it all. I am only as good as the people around me. 
And I truly believe that the best leaders listen. So as I was mentally preparing for my time coming back to reading partners, what I did not do was say, Ola, you've been there before. You've been there for three years. You know what to do. You're going to go in there and you're going to do all these things. That was actually the opposite. Like I have some ideas and some things that I want to do, but it may not happen right now because the first thing that I need to do is go in and listen. So I did a 90 day listening tour and spoke to every single person in the organization, some in small groups, some one-on-one. -on -one, and I just asked a series of questions about culture, about challenges, about the very thing they love most about the organization, what makes their work the hardest. And like, that's really what formulated for me the vision of what I needed to do over the next three years. The vision for where we were going as an organization, how we were evolving and what our strategic plan was. So I'm really good at listening and I'm really good at taking what I've listened, what I've heard and um, succinctly sharing it back and then changing my leadership and what I'm going to do based on what I've heard that people love and what they don't and what they need. And so that's, that's what I think is really important for leaders. I think far too often there's this misconception that leaders know everything and they go in and have all the answers. No, I don't have all the answers. I don't pretend to. And I think there are certainly ways that I have to prepare and know data and be able to talk about how we're doing as an organization. And there's a way that I prepare for that. But I also am open to taking questions and saying, that is such a great question. I don't know the answer to that. And I'm going to come back. And whether that's the board, funders, or my own staff. Did, did you, how'd you find it? Um, it, it how'd you give yourself permission to give yourself time to get reacquainted with the organization? Because I think there is probably a natural inclination, as you indicated, um, to an organization you work for, very familiar, you helped to build it. Uh, to go in there, you know, with this attitude, like, uh, I kind of know what the organization needs. Here's what we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, how'd you, how'd you pull the reins on yourself uh, in order to give yourself time to get reconnected to the organization and spend time on what is essentially a listening tour uh, within yeah. the organization? I think an organization is made up of people, right? And the people were not exactly the same people. And even the people who were there before have changed. Have, have, have switched roles and the organization had evolved. When I was there before, we weren't doing any tutoring virtually. And now we're in the middle of a pandemic. The majority of staff had not connected with one another in person. There were a number of leaders who, for whom, you know, it, there was like this normal um, experience where they hadn't met any other colleagues in person. And, and that was so different than anything I had experienced before. So I think just acknowledging that, yes, while there's like some cultural norms that are so similar, and I think as I would pick up on things that were similar from my time before, I would leverage those things for buy-in. So like, for example, our core values didn't change. And so many of the questions that I asked were like kind of couched in various core values. Um, and then I would also kind of reference back, well, when I was here, in the past, I know that this was important. Is this still a thing? So I would use it not as, oh, I already know this, but rather I remember there was this thing. Is that still a thing? And then as I would see some similarities from the past, I think leveraging that to talk about what was still the, what, what still existed helped. And then I think over the 90 days, I think some of the buy-in that helps our, our, our biggest saturation of staff and AmeriCorps members are all seated in our program. They're the ones who are at the forefront of tutoring, they design the program, they implement it, they manage the people who are implementing program. And so I had acknowledged early on, like I'm not an expert yet on our curriculum, I'm not. 
And one of the ways that I'm going to become that is I'm going to become a tutor. And I think that for many people was like, whoa, she's going to tutor. And I think just not used to having necessarily the CEO being someone who also tutored. Um, and I think that made me feel a bit more human for people. I think that normalized some of their experiences of things that they were seeing in program. And so I could bond with folks on that too. But yeah, I mean, I think the reason the, the decision was just that like, if I go in here and do that, I don't think people are going to be receptive. And I think what got us to where we are, got us to where we were, got us to where we are, but it wasn't going to take us to where I thought we needed to go. And so I was like, let me not just talk about 2013 to 2016. I think people are going to be bored of hearing that. I think, you know, I get some cool points like, oh, okay, you've been here before. Great. But we're a different organization. And like, let me make sure that I'm understanding what it means that we're a different organization. I don't know. MK, yeah. that answers your question. No, I, it absolutely does. I love that. And it, it, I love that you, from a maturity standpoint, had the awareness to understand that, yeah, there have been some changes, not, you know, some same people, uh, but those people are different. They've had different experiences right. over this period of time. I, I, I think all of that's very rational uh, and a very mature way to approach it. I don't, I don't know that everyone takes the time to recognize those kinds of things. And I, I think that your approach absolutely makes sense. Um, I, I, you know, folks like yourself who are leading large scale organizations, I think, uh, could probably, uh, teach the rest of us a thing or two about, um, the idea of like, how much of it is stuff that you need to be hands-on with and how much of it is stuff that you need to delegate. You, I'm sure have become, or have learned to be a powerful delegator, uh, because there's no way you could do all this stuff on your own. You, you sort of touched upon, you know, filling in the gaps. You're like, there's stuff that you are fantastic at, but there's stuff also that you probably just don't don't know about. And you got to make room to allow other leaders to step into the breach there and let them do their jobs. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Maybe recognizing, sure. you know, like wh where you're, um, where you end and maybe where someone else begins. It is certainly a balancing act. Um, I think delegation certainly is key. And because the, my past few positions in nonprofit organizations, I've kind of known all of the staff that work in regions. I've seen most of the programs in all of the schools that we've operated in and other organizations I've worked for. And um, this is just different. I've not seen our programs in every single school. I can't. Um, I've not met, I mean, I've not sat down and had an hour long conversation with every single person. And I've spoken to a lot of people, but there are people who run regional operations, for example. So I have a team, um, someone who's our chief impact officer, and he oversees about 80% of the organization. He manages executive directors along with the vice president, and they are the people who visit regions much more than I do. So I will go to regions, but I also you know, defer to them of tell me what would be the most impactful thing that I can do. Tell me what I need to know as I go into this region. And then also asking those same questions to the executive director. So I think also recognizing that there is a distinct role that I play. There are some things that I do really well that people oftentimes want me to do. And sometimes that's like, you know, going to the Silicon Valley um, region's um, fundraising event where I got to meet you in person and talking about our vision, talking about our strategic plan, because it was still so new, right? And we were just rolling it out. And so the executive director, Felicia, saying, no, I really need you to come in and do this thing. So I think giving people agency to almost dictate and manage up to me and let them know what role I can play, I feel like feels really empowering to people as opposed to me dictating, this is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm not going to do. It's less of that. And I, I think of 
my roles. I work for every, I work for every single person in this organization. How can I be helpful? Um, so I, so that's one of the ways that I think about it. And I am not the only person in the organization who shares a vision. Like everybody should, like everyone should. And it's about, we, we need to have an aligned vision and there's a way that I share my vision, but there's a nuanced way that other leaders do. And I need to create grace and space to allow folks to do that. So for example, we have, um, as I, I mentioned earlier, an all RP call, call that we have a Zoom meeting with every single person in the organization. And in that meeting, it's 90 minutes. And I probably talked for five to 10 minutes of that. When I first came into the organization, I was probably speaking for about 30 to 45 minutes. People wanted to know a bit more about me. People had questions and wanted to know what was changing, right? So um, to be able to like take myself out of it a little bit and not make it about me and instead bringing other leaders and having them share their stories and talk about their whys or share some successes and gratitude, I think just goes so much further for everybody. And I think it, it shows that this organization can operate and run without there being the CEO on a daily basis doing X, Y, and Z. And so that's some of what I'm trying to step more and more into now that I'm here, you know, now that, it, now that I'm in my third year. So I think a lot about what do I want to be true about who we are in the ecosystem of tutoring, education equity, high dosage tutoring, like, and literacy, and what role can, can only, Adiola Whitney, what role can I only uh, distinctively play? And how can I create the conditions where I'm doing more of that? And I'm moving out of the way so other people can do maybe other things that I was doing two years ago. So that's also part of how I think of um, my work. And then I have a really, really incredible support staff. So I have something called the executive office and that's made up of my chief of staff, a director of the executive office and an executive assistant. And so those people, those three people really help me do everything that I have to do. They understand the priorities of the organization, what role I have to play, what role they have to play, what role every other person in the organization plays. So they ensure that I am where I need to be. I'm delegating in ways they, they manage up and remind me, you actually don't need to do that. So-and-so needs to do this. The chief of staff can be your proxy in this meeting. You don't need to do that. Why don't we send these five people to do this thing? So they're really good at thought partnering and helping me along with my executive team is also really good at helping me think through that. So I don't do it on my own. I, I do rely on other people to help me think about that. And I ask for a ton of feedback about what works and what's not working about my leadership. And I make changes as a result of that. So I just, I just think feedback is important. And it's in, in, in a role like mine, I feel like you can hear a lot of, people can yes you to death. People can be somewhat passive and, 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 and say what they think you want to hear. And if you lead in a way to say, look, there's a lot that I don't know. Like no one knows how to run this reading center better than you. I'm not coming in here to critique you. I'm coming in here to learn. I'm, co I'm coming in here to understand what are you doing? What's the magic of how you've been able to tutor 65 kids this year? Tell me more about that. Tell me what we need to do to be better as opposed to me coming in and saying, oh, you're not doing these five things. No one wants to hear that. There are other people that can do that, right? Like, I don't think that's the role that they want the CEO to play. So I just, I, try, I really try to be cognizant of asking the right questions to people, checking in on how they're loving their work and what they're not loving about their work and ensuring that other leaders can help support in the areas that are hard and the things that they love, making sure we're doing more of. I how do you keep your talent effectively engaged? And let me tell you why I'm, why I'm asking this question. There, there's a, 
I believe, misperception um, that the talent in the nonprofit space isn't as talented as the folks that you might find in uh, in private sector work. Uh, I think that's a um, uh, one an oversimplification of something that uh, you know people go in. I think nonprofit space for lots of different reasons, and I think mm-hmm. those passions typically override their desires to. Uh, work in the private sector. So people are there for a reason. So you've got actually the pa- the passion piece locked up, which is something in the private sector that they fail to capture uh, again and again. Typically, you know, people might be working for some big corporation. They don't, they aren't necessarily passionate about what they're doing. They might be well paid or well compensated, but they, they, you don't get their life's blood uh, engaged in what it is that they're doing. Whereas in the nonprofit space, there's always this component of like, people are doing this work because they believe in it. Uh, it's right. a big deal to them. It matters to them. And oh, by the way, maybe there's a compensation component um, added to it. If you're lucky, how, how do you um, keep your talent motivated? Um, or what's been your experience with like sort of keeping folks engaged and, and on point on mission where you don't have like the tools and levers that maybe uh, folks in the private sector have available to them? Yeah. And, I, and that's such a good question, MK. And I would say I mean, I don't know. I don't recall the number of um, nonprofits in this country. There are a ton. I mean, hundreds of thousands, millions, probably. I don't. I don't know the number, but what I do know is that like I sit in a really privileged seat. You know, we are thirty-three million dollar organization. Um, we've just gone through a compensation analysis and an equity study to ensure that we're paying people equitably and competitively. Because um, over the last couple of years, the people that we have left, a, a number of them have left to go to higher paying jobs. So now that we are in a place where we're paying even more equitably, and I'd say even before that, our relative to many organizations, we were paying somewhat competitively. We're now paying even more competitively. That matters. Like what people are paid matters, even in nonprofit organizations when they're doing work that happens to align with their passions. Um, that is a big deal. And then, and I also think um, really understanding people's motivations and desire for the work and ensuring that they can continue to learn and grow and that the work that they're doing creates professional development opportunities for them. Those are the type of things that I think seem important to me. Um, And those are the things that feel important to me as a leader to make sure that I am checking in on with the people who I get the privilege of leading. And you know, for my executive team, and even I would say for a number of our executive directors who lead our regions, there's a large percentage of them who've had time in the for-profit industry. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we have people who worked in for-profit industry. And I think more and more nonprofits are really being just as competitive as many for-profit companies at attracting really great talent. Um, and I get excited when we have, you know, roles in my organization that I've seen that 9,000 or 1,000 people apply. That's huge for us. And that's bigger than we've ever seen before. So there's something we're doing, right? I think we're attracting people because the work we're doing is great. It's an exciting time at the organization. We're trying our best to connect where we're going to where people currently are and why their work matters, why the work they do on a daily basis matters. And we create space for them to ask questions and innovate and be part of the solution and we think about equity and how we pay and in benefits and we're constantly trying to find ways to improve our benefits and our support to people so i think it's that i think it's like we listen to what people want and we try our best to create the the conditions um to meet 
to ensure that what they want meets what we can offer. Uh, so those are some of the things that I think about. I, I just, I take coaching and professional development really seriously. I take feedback seriously. I think every single person on my team knows that I'm only as good as the people next to me. And I, I get better because of them. Like, I become a better CEO and leader because of the people who I am just um, honored to be able to lead. Um, and I just think leadership is reciprocal and that learning is reciprocal. So that's how I just enter spaces. And I, and I also think when I'm interviewing, I'm selling, I'm selling them just as much as they're selling. It should be reciprocal. It shouldn't just be a candidate selling that. Like what is in it for them? Like, how can I get them excited to want to work on my team and in this organization? And I think of that when I go into interviews. And then lastly, I just think when people leave an organization as leaders, we should be thinking, you know, people don't quit their jobs, they quit their bosses. And so I think that even when people move halfway around the world for really good reasons, I always think about what could I have done better for that person? And when right. I think about that, that only helps me be better for the next person coming in. So I just, I think we have a responsibility to do that. And it's easy to make excuses. Oh, well, they moved to Ethiopia. Oh, well, they blah, 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 or they're whatever. Their life situation changed. That can be true. And still it's important as a leader to think what could we have done differently what could we've done better how can we make this better for the next person coming in so uh i i want to go down the pathway of sort of talking about your experience being a uh, high performing woman of color um and your experience in industry nonprofit or otherwise with um one you got some you got some clear chops you got some leadership capabilities right folks recognize that uh, to some uh, I've heard stories that things like that can be intimidating to other people. Like, uh, what's been your what's been your experience leading uh, as a woman of color uh, in uh, the space that you're in? Yeah, I would say as a black woman, I own who I am and my role very proudly, and um, and and I'm unapologetic about who I am, and um, and the difference that I bring to this organization. I think it is an advantage for the person leading reading partners to have been here before. I think it's an advantage that um, some of my experiences growing up um, are similar to some of the students that we serve and in some ways, right? I, I think I think there are, there are advantages to that. And I talk about that often. And I'm just, um, I refuse to be defined by somebody else. I'm not gonna ever allow anybody else to define who I am and I, unapologetically, I'll call other people out about that. I think I'm extraordinarily lucky to have the board of directors that I have who also believe in my vision and believe in me and allow me to be unapologetically me and interviewed me. And in those interviews, I was unapologetically me. And when I say that, I don't mean um, not professional. I mean, just being authentically who I am and not being worried like, oh, do I sound too much like a fill in the blank or am no. I... Are they not going to like this answer? If, if they don't like this answer, maybe this is not the role for me. And that's okay. So I think that's how I go into leadership opportunities. And I'm just not afraid to call people out for their isms, for their sexism, for the racism. I'm not. And I, and I think I am able to do it in a way that meets people where they are. And it doesn't always work, right? But I'm not afraid to say, huh, I, I'd like to push you on that. I'd like to push you on the way that you just described that young person. You know, you just said that they don't receive love at home. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? 
you just told me you're a mother of two. Imagine if someone claimed that you don't love your kids. How would that feel? And, and, and I'm just describing sometimes right. when we perhaps find someone who wants to tutor or is a tutor, uh, who's been a tutor in our program, who may come from a more affluent background. There have been times where we've had to kind of check our tutors or check people or funders about how we talk about the young students that we serve. And I believe I'm gonna talk about those young people the same way I want somebody to talk about my kids. I'm gonna talk about them from a place of, um, from an asset-based uh, uh, frame, not from a deficit base. I don't want anybody talking about all the flaws of any of my kids, right? Or I don't want people to assume what their flaws are. So I, I oftentimes find that it is something in that space where I have to check people's privilege and say a thing um, and then other times, you know, and it's been this role as well as other roles, sometimes people are surprised that I am the CEO or surprised that, and whatever, whatever pre-assumptions they have, whether I look younger or I am of a different ethnicity than they assumed, or my background is different than what they thought, that is something they need to own. Like, I just, I don't need to prove myself to people. I believe in bringing, getting buy-in, but I'm not gonna prove to you, I don't need to prove to you that I'm smart or I earned, I've, I've earned this role. That's just, that's just not my problem. No. And I think the, the acknowledgement that that's not my problem forces me of any ownership of their shit, of their stuff. Right. Like I just, and, and, and so then it, it, it doesn't become, let me go in there and show them why I am. I'm not gonna do that. Like I'm gonna go in there and talk about why reading partners is so important and why the work that we do. So that's, I just, and, and I, and I try to, surround myself with people who are, you know, um, culturally attuned. And I, and I have a board who's culturally attuned and cares about this work and, and recognizes the importance of having somebody like me at the helm of this and ensuring that they're setting me up for success. In During the pandemic, there was a rise of especially Black women and, and folks of color in, in CEO roles and nonprofit, especially in nonprofits and in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And far too often, people were not set up to succeed. And they were like, okay, you think somebody of color or a woman should be running this? All right, we'll give it to you. We're not going to set you up to succeed, but we're going to give it to you. And that's, that's, so that's just setting them up to fail, right? So uh, thankfully, that is, that's not been my experience um, because of the board, because of the leadership that I have. Oh, such a great observation, I think, of, uh, um, you know, it's not enough, I think, just to, to take those non-substantive steps, identify people of color for these leadership positions, but you got to do the right thing and prepare them for success, you know, remove the blockers, right. make sure that you support um, uh, these leaders that you're bringing on board. So I, I got to tell you, I, I, I love it. You're probably uh, one of the more authentic, uh, uh, confident folks that I've come across, certainly in this leadership series of interviewing uh, folks. And I love every bit of it because it's, it, I have a saying that I tell people all the time and something I've developed over the years, which is know yourself before you go in the room, uh, understand who you are, what it is that you're bringing to the table. And it, it, it takes, you described it in a very colorful and very different way, but it alleviates you of having to, uh, I think, you know, explain yourself to people, but it also in a self-reflective way is a recognition of, you know, understand how you show up in the space. Uh, and then you can, you know, understand how people might respond uh, to who you are, and you can uh, sort of pivot effectively from that. Fantastic. Uh, Adiola, th th I think we probably just touched on <laughs> a fraction of the things that I wanted to cover with you. 
but maybe we can tee that up and I can already uh, preemptively ask you to maybe come back to the Leadership Student Podcast at some point so we can continue this conversation. Uh, loved everybody. I would love that. Tell, tell the audience um, uh, how they can find you, maybe even, you know, amplify the reading partner site or anything that you want to do in terms of how folks can. Uh, I would love that. Yeah. So I would really love to come back seriously. So let's figure out if that's, if that's, if there's ever a time for that and um, reading partners. So first of all, we're always looking for volunteers, especially now as we're about to embark on some summer programs and get prepared for the fall to serve students. We're going to be serving about 10,000 kids next year. And so Anyone who has an hour a week, and even if they can't physically get to a reading center, but you want to make a difference, we will train you. You don't have to have education experience. You need to have a love and passion for young people and the belief in their potential. Um, and to be able to, of course, pass a background check because that is critically important. Um, mm -hmm. If you're interested in learning more about the volunteer opportunities or just about reading partners and where we're located across the country, because I probably did leave off one or two of our markets, you can go to www.readingpartners.org um, to learn. And you can also go to our Instagram handle, our Twitter handle, our Facebook, all of that. You can find reading partners. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, Adeola, A-D-E-O-L-A, Whitney. Um, yeah. And, and you can find me on this podcast, but you've already, you're here. If you're listening to this, you're already here. Um, but yeah, this has been so amazing and just such a privilege. I appreciate you wanting to interview me and talk to me about um, my thoughts on leadership. Uh, there's a lot I've learned, but there's still a lot that I am learning. So just really honored and privileged to, to get this space with you. Well, uh, selfishly, I get a ton out of these conversations. I consider myself a, a, the eternal learner on leadership as a discipline. Uh, and then just hearing uh, you go through some of your experiences, believe me, there's takeaways that I'm getting. And my hope is that folks listening to this podcast can take uh, some of those gems as well and incorporate it in their own leadership development. So thank you very much. You're so welcome. Thank you. Really good to see you again. So folks, thanks. Uh, that's it for this episode of the Leadership Student Podcast. Be on the lookout for forthcoming episodes and be sure to follow uh, the LinkedIn newsletter, The Leadership Student, and uh, follow, link, and share this podcast. We'll see you guys next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with M.K. Palmore, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to the ITSB Magazine YouTube channel, and share the ITSB Magazine podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit ITSBMagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.